Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light Shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Welcome to the Gravity Podcast, where we host conversations on developing a Christian spirituality rooted in love that fosters resilient faith in everyday life. Welcome, listener, to the Gravity Podcast. I'm Matt Tebby. I'm here every time, almost every time, usually. Almost every time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and that's uh, the voice of Ben Sternke. Hi, Ben. Hello. Uh, good to uh, good to see you, Matt. Good to be you here. You too, Ben. You're, missing, you're handling you're handling yeah. some uh, problems today, right? Yeah, minor minor family emergencies, um, which is part of the reason that Christy could not be here with us today. It's ironic that my family emergency has caused Christy to be unable to be with us, but uh, the, such is the way of things. But I had to run uh, I had to run an errand to grab an extra key to a car. And so we missed our normal time for recording yeah. this intro and Christy could not make this later time that we were recording the intro. But she did ask us to mention that, you know, she runs a family ministry at a church yep. there in, in Colorado uh, Springs and she is hiring summer interns. Yeah. So if you are looking for a summer internship or know somebody who is, we'll put a link to this opportunity in the show notes, you can uh, follow that link, fill out an application, or you can email Christy and just ask her about it. So, yeah, yep, yeah. If you're feeling, if you're an intern who is uh, particularly summery, is that how is it, does summer describe the interns? Yeah, yeah. Okay, interns for the summer. <clears throat> Sorry, it was it was an attempt at a bad joke. I was thinking that mm. it described it described the intern themselves that they were a summer intern. Mm. Yeah, but it's not. It's interns for the summer season, June, July, August. So yes, yeah, that's it. All right, first joke of the week fell flat. <laughs> keep trying, Ben. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep trying. <laughs> I don't know if I got enough sleep last night or something. So um, anyway, I made an attempt. That's all we can ask. Yeah, good try. Yeah, uh, we're talking to John Ward today. Yes. Or um, releasing the interview that we, the conversation that we had with John Ward yeah. a few months ago. We're listening to John Ward. We're listening to John Ward. Um, yeah, John Ward uh, wrote a book called Testimony Inside the Evangelical Movement that Failed a Generation. Dun, dun, dun. Um, bum, bum, bum. Anyway, uh, he kind of tells some of his own story uh, in this book, kind of growing up in the 
um, evangelical world of the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Remember those decades? Yep. Yeah. Um, and kind of through his um, reporting, he's a journalist, I think, and a writer by uh, trade, um, kind of details, sheds light on the troubling political and cultural dimensions of the evangelical movement. Um, mm. Going all the way back to like the Jesus people movement, which uh, I remember um, my family got in, got into that. We, we visited uh, Chicago a couple of times, visited the Jesus people. Oh, really? Yeah. So anyway, it's all kind of part of this. Um, I don't know. It feels like it's a part of, uh, we do a lot of these kinds of conversations where um, there's just a, a, a reckoning. A lot of us have come to, yeah. Um, with sort of, yeah, reckoning with, um, yeah, the past that we have come out of and trying to sift and sort the, the good from the bad and the, you know, the ways that this movement, um, yeah, failed us. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to John because we're, a lot of us, a lot of you are trying to make sense of your life, trying to make sense of what you experienced, find mm-hmm. language and understanding, even sometimes validation and permission. Right. And um, as many uh, of us that we can talk to as possible who have done more processing and metabolizing yeah. uh, of past harmful experiences and can give us hope, the better, I think. Yeah. Right? I think so too. And um, it was really helpful to talk uh, with John and his book. His book is helpful. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, let's get to the audio entree. Yes. um, This appetizer was was tasty, and hopefully it wet your audio earbuds, your Mm -hmm. audio taste buds. Earbuds. Your earbuds for, (laughs) for this interview. Yes, let's get into it. Here we go. John Ward joins us on the Gravity Podcast today. He's the chief national correspondent for Yahoo News, and he's covered American politics and culture for two decades, including as a White House correspondent, traveling aboard Air Force One, and as a national affairs correspondent, writing about two presidential campaigns. He's the author of Camelot's End, Kennedy versus Carter, and the Fight that Broke the Democratic Party, and hosts the Long Game Podcast. John has written for the Washington Post... The New Republic, Politico, Vanity Fair, HuffPost, and The Washington Times, and lives in D.C. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. John, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Matt, Ben, Christy, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, tell mm-hmm. us quickly about The Long Game. What is your podcast on? What does it cover? Back in uh, 2000. 16, um, the day that uh, the former President Trump <clears throat> became the nominee of the Republican Party, I made a decided shift in how I approached journalism and decided that I was going to do more work that was focused on understanding uh, systemic drivers of our political dysfunction. Um, and I formed the podcast originally to try to understand why uh, 
first of all, Americans and modern people in general in the West probably don't seem to consider the role of institutions in how we solve problems, which sounds kind of theoretical, but if you just think of a problem in your life or a community and just sort of think about what institutions are, you know, trying to solve those problems. I think a lot of people, the first question they would ask if they're honest with themselves would be, what is an institution? And I think that gets to the heart of the issue, which is, I think we don't really even know what an institution is. We haven't really thought about it, much less thought about, you know, what its role is. So, um, that, that whole thing was kind of driven by watching the Republican party be taken over by Donald Trump, even though, the, the institution itself did not want him to be its nominee. And when I say the institution, I mean the people at the Republican National Committee, uh, people inside the Republican Party in elected office, and, and primary voters as well, the people who actually choose the nominees. 30% was about as high as Donald Trump got in most of those early contests. So there was about two-thirds of the Republican Party primary voters who did not want Donald Trump in 2016, but yet he was able to take over that institution. And so I was very curious as to like what a political party was and why that existed. Mm. So all of that were the questions that I was asking um, originally, sort of what's an institution? Why does it exist? What's a political party? Why does that exist? Um, And then over the past several years, it's just kind of been a vehicle to explore what's causing our political dysfunction and our cultural dysfunction and what are the drivers and how can we think creatively about solutions? Yeah, that sounds fascinating. We'll put uh, a link to that podcast in the show notes there in your bio. Um, Sometimes I interview people like Bill Buford about his book about, you know, living in Lyon and cooking, but that's just sort of extra <laughs> for fun. You do what you want with your podcast, yeah. man. That's yeah. right. Yeah. You can yeah, prerogative. Do that. that sounds interesting, actually. So. Um, well, today we're chatting about this book uh, about being inside the evangelical movement, which is part maybe folk history and part memoir hmm. of evangelicalism in the last few decades. Uh, Your work has mostly been in the political sphere, public square, like you were just describing, but this is a much more personal work and takes on a a religious hue. What led you to write um, this personal reflection? Um, Just a gentle sort of reminder. The name of the book is actually Testimony. Um, I think you were reading the the subtitle. Dude, I I hadn't even seen it. Yeah, well, it kind there of it is. Testimony. blends in there. My um, bad, John. <clears throat> the t- the title itself is a very is in a very liminal space, as <laughs> I write about. Um, and I've never heard the term folk history. I like that. Um, <clears throat> I'm not quite sure what it means, but I, but it sounds cool. Um, I I wrote the book because I I knew from a long time ago that I wanted to write about the way I, I as a as a person who considers himself a writer, as many people do but who also writes for a living. Um, you know, I, I just wanted to write about the way I was raised, not because I had an ax to grind, but just because, um, a writer is, is drawn to interesting source material and, and subject matter and good stories. And there was lots of that in, in my upbringing. I just sort of sense from a young age or maybe just my, my early twenties that there was, it was just such a unique, not, not that there were plenty of other people have lived in those, in those worlds, but I don't feel like many people who live in those worlds really 
take those stories out of those worlds. They generally kind of stay, you know, in, in those spaces. So I wanted to probably have some interaction between my story and, and the world outside it. And, and really in one sense, the book is a story of my journey from outside of that world to the broader world, you know, and journalism is, is kind of been the, the vehicle for that. Um, and so when it, when it came to the last several years, it became more clear that um, because the question I had for a long time was, well, why would anybody really want to read this story? And so over the last several years, um, you know, because of Trumpism, uh, it became pretty clear that there, to me, you know, in ways that I kind of understood as I read, as I wrote the book, even that there were a lot of implications for how I had been raised. Um, stuff like kind of being repulsed by the, the moral majority and the, and the, and the religious right growing up um, became a lot more relevant. I had always just kind of thought, eh, it's kind of off-putting, but ultimately maybe kind of harmless. Right. Um, sort of like Lou Engel, you know, the guy who is now a major figure in the new apostolic reformation. I just thought, oh, it's kind of silly and weird, but kind of harmless. He, he means well. Um, and, you know, clearly like I was mistaken and I underestimated the, the long-term impact of all of that. Yeah. 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 I, um, maybe getting into some of the details of that, um, might be interesting. You know, you narrate in this book, um, some of your parents' faith journey from the Jesus movement, um, which, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. My, um, we had some history there as well, just with my, with my parents and, you know, um, um, the churches that I was involved in as a young person. Um, and then your dad becomes, you know, a pastor with CJ Mahaney at Covenant Life Church and your experiences with Teen Mania and Ron Luce. I mean, and uh, throughout all of this, you describe being anti-abortion as kind of a formative part of your upbringing and what it meant to be a Christian. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can reflect for us a bit on the impact of the pro-life movement, um, the impact that it had on you and then white evangelicalism as a whole. Sure. I think the necessary um, sort of preface to any discussion of abortion is the way that my, I and many others were taught and discipled to think about politics in the evangelical you know, setting, megachurch setting, which is to say we were discipled and taught not really to think about politics. Um, right. We were basically um, you know, in a culture, in a world that considered politics to be of the world and, um, and therefore dirty or um, below, you know, our need for attention. Like we it just, it wasn't heavenly enough. And, and so we were to be focused on things that were advancing the kingdom of God, advancing the church. And politics was decidedly not that. I understand and recognize that there are other evangelical experiences where people, you know, at the same time that I was experiencing this were in churches that were probably saying, you know, politics is how you advance the kingdom of God. That wasn't my experience. Um, but I do think, you know, I was born in 77 or 46. I graduated high school in 95. Um, even though there was the Christian coalition and, um, 
you know, Ralph Reed and, and Pat Robertson. I do, I don't have data for this, but I do feel like the, there was a large number of evangelicals, if not the majority who were still in the nineties, you know, maybe this has changed a little bit with Bush, but still in the nineties were sort of maybe listening to Rush Limbaugh, but not all that politically engaged. So all of that to say, um, politics was really the only, um, political issue that we talked about in church cared about, I guess maybe sometimes sexuality would pop up and, and, you know, the Iraq war, uh, after nine 11 would, would pop up, but on an ongoing basis, abortion was it. And we didn't, I think the, the biggest thing to point out is we didn't think of it as political. We just thought of it as right versus wrong and, um, yeah. good versus evil. And so yeah. when you, when you first of all have a very immature and, um, not very robust uh, understanding of pol- of politics and political issues, um, and then you just sort of focus on one issue like abortion. Um, you know, I think it just created a very one dimensional way of looking at politics. I'm not really breaking any new ground here. I, I think probably most of your listeners have heard this and thought about it a lot, mm-hmm. but that was definitely my experience. Yeah. John, uh, 95 was a good year to graduate high school. I just want to say that. Um, but also, if you could just double click a little bit on, you talk about maybe that's one consequence of just have, being like one, one focus, one mind of Christianity and politics because of this marriage of pro-life and anti-abortion kind of being married together. But what are the other consequences? What else have you seen from your perspective? Well, another big one is that I think it lays the groundwork for the demonization of those you disagree with. Um, you know, I, I have distinct memories of, you know, thinking about how Democrats supported abortion, even though, you know, many Democrats wouldn't even put it in those terms, but that's how I thought of it. Um, you know, and so when you think of it, when, when you're not really making an effort to understand the other side of the issue, uh, it's very easy to just sort of, as a first step, consider Democrats or anyone who is pro-choice in any way um, to be, you know, on the side of evil and evil themselves. So I've had I remember having thoughts like, are they con- are they being influenced by demons? Uh, you know, what possibly could explain this? And of course, the idea that there could be Christians on the other side of this issue is, um, is unthinkable. And I think the demonization issue is something that over the last several years, we've, I've written quite a bit about this just over the past year or two. Um, you know, the, the most egregious or obvious example of this is Michael Flynn in, in 2022, who was Trump's former national security advisor, uh, at a political rally, I believe in Missouri, um, referred like literally called Nancy Pelosi a demon. Um, and you know, the, the podcast series charismatic revival fury is one of the best, um, explorations I've seen of the way that the more charismatic wing of the evangelical church really does function now as it has for a long time, but more and more in, in a realm where they are kind of confusing uh, Ephesians, uh, you know, instructions to take up the armor of God 
um, with sort of this idea that they are their political opponents are, you know, the forces of evil. Even though the the, the scriptures say we don't you know, battle against flesh and blood, but they are they are fusing the two um, to a point where their political opponents are are often referred to as you know the equivalent of or actually literally demons. And that and that often leads to violence, you know, as right, uh, right, in, yeah. in history. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the benefits of scapegoating people as less than human is that you get to treat them in less than human ways. <clears throat> Correct. Um, as benefits I benefits in square quotes, though, right? R- right. Benefits. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who that's good for. We'll be right back. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, our 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn how to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life that God shares with us. It is a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying out some new practices. In the Gravity Formation Course, we go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it's helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. Let's get back to the show. One of the things that comes up as we read your book, John, is that there are a lot of names that people will recognize. We already mentioned C.J. Mahaney, Ben mentioned Ron Luce, Mark Driscoll. Um, Mike Bickle shows up in your book, which he's been in the news recently. I don't know if you've seen these reports out of the International House of Prayer. There's allegations of um, abuse against young women. And I wonder if you can reflect a bit I remember, I remember being in seminary in the early aughts and um, really caught up sort of in, in admiration of these kinds of, of these sort of luminaries in the evangelical world. And I wonder if you can reflect a bit, maybe even thinking back to yourself as a youth or maybe more broadly, culturally, like what, what is so appealing about guys like this? Um, what about them engenders trust <clears throat> and allegiance? Um, in your opinion? It's a good question. Um, I think of, I think of uh, Lou Engel, um, who was, you know, a contemporary and a colleague of, of Mike Bickle, and I guess still is, but um, they both have been leaders in that, in that apostolic charismatic movement, Bickle house of uh, international house of prayer and Engel out of California. I can't remember the name of the church with him and Cheon. Um, but the thing that stands out to me about Lou Engle is he, even now I actually have a hard time uh, talking about him because I want to really make sure I'm not being cynical about his motives. Cause I think the motives of a lot of these people are actually, um, well, not a lot. Some of these people, Lou Engle strikes me as a pretty sincere person. Like I don't get the sense that he's at all, um, you know, doing, doing something devious or, I mean, he might be, but I don't know, but like, but anyway, 
he offers to some to to young people again i think very sincerely because i think he thinks of it this way too just this all all out pursuit of the holy um right. and and the transcendent um and i think that especially to young people i think that idea of um all consuming pursuit almost the point of obliteration of self um is very attractive it it just provides meaning uh really intense sources of meaning um at a time in your life when you're really hungry for that mm. um and you're you're seeking to uh find your way and make your your mark on the world um i i do I, you know i do think like there's something um almost i was going to say admirable i mean I, I think it's oversimplistic but i i think it again i think it comes from a from a place of of sincere good intentions with when it comes to somebody like lou angle but um but i also think somebody like lou angle gets kind of trapped because they develop a, a certain ministry style and a ministry audience and that has financial implications for them. Yep. So, you know, it's hard to evolve at that point. Yeah. And even this, you know, just to, even the sense that it's not just them now it's, there's people who on the payroll, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. Sure. It's just sort of, yeah. um, I think even for the best hearted people, that's a really, really difficult place to, you know, uh, to be in. So, yeah. Um, did I answer the question? I don't remember. <laughs> what it was. I, I think you did really well. Yeah. I, okay. I think, I think that answer is fascinating because, um, and I, I appreciate you not wanting to sort of malign uh, the motives, not to demonize your opponents as you were talking about earlier, um, but not to, you know, malign the motives. Um, because I, th- this has been part of my journey of trying to integrate where I came from. Cause I came out of the, like a charismatic world. And so just seeing, seeing that whole world fall head over heels, you know, just in love with the idea of Trump has been like, really, it was disorienting for me, mm. you know, quite mm-hmm. a bit um, early on. Hmm. And so I appreciate that um, account of what is attractive about figures like that. Yeah. I, I think it's helpful. I think it's also, John, something I heard too, is that I, I do think it's, it's common in the nomenclature to, frame people as grifters. Yeah. And I I do think there's grifting that happens. Basically people cosplaying certain things, knowingly deceiving. Right. But I think it's much easier for a human person with a human conscience to actually believe the snake oil is real. Um, I think you can, I think you can in, you're way more believable. You have way more energy. If, if you actually are a (laughs) true believer in the lies you're, you're selling versus knowingly lying. And so I, I do think there is something about the confidence and the persuasiveness. You know, in the book, you talk about how CJ would openly weep all the time as he preached. Uh, it's really hard f- to to muster up alligator tears week after week. It's a lot easier to actually cry, <laughs> you know? And I think that that, I think there's something persuasive to young people who want the world to be black and white, want the world to be, you know, net. Yeah, this is how the world works and I can navigate this and I can, I'm confident because yeah. CJ's confident and John Piper's confident and Mark's confident. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense. 
a lot of sense. Yeah. It's easier to actually cry. Um, if you're, if you're somebody like CJ, as long as you are able to, and okay with just shutting off certain doors to uncomfortable questions or just reality itself, you know, you have to increasingly sort of wall yourself off. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think if you do that, um, you can sort of encase yourself in a world in which, you know, the, the beliefs are so strong and the dogma is so all, all pervasive that, um, you just sort of live yeah. in, in this hermetic, you know, hermetically sealed environment. Yeah. Um, I mean, I lived it for a couple of years. I, I do feel like it's gotta be hard to keep doing that over decades, but yeah, the cognitive dissonance, it seems like would catch up with you eventually. Yeah. Um, I wonder, I wonder if we can talk then about leaving, um, uh, because I, you know, for all of us sort of have been embedded in, um, this kind of world in one way or another. And a lot of our listeners are on this journey as well, uh, various stages of the journey. And so, you know, the second part of this book, you talk about how you began to separate yourself from this tradition that you grew up in. And I wonder if you could reflect back, um, and, and, and just ponder with us, like, were there one or two main catalysts for your exit? Was there, was there a seminal or a pivotal moment or realization that contributed to you saying, you know what, I think I need to make a move here. I think I need to separate myself, you know, whatever that cost you. Like there's usually for, for most people, there's some sort of moment or some, uh, something that happened for them. I don't know if you can identify one or two of those things for us. I've had this question a couple number of times. Um, I, and usually nothing comes to mind um, because it was kind of a gradual thing for me. Um, you know, I, I left, um, I stopped leading a small group and I stopped going to church on Sundays around age 24, but I kept going to small group meetings at, um, hmm. in the same, in the same church. Um, and then after, you know, I, I met my wife, Allison and, we got married, we moved into DC out of the suburbs and we started going to a uh, Presbyterian church, um, downtown. And, um, that was different than what I had grown up with, but it, mm -hmm. it wasn't certainly wasn't like an exit from conservative Christianity. Um, you know, uh, so mm -hmm. I, I think if, if we're talking about the exit from covenant life, church it would have happened over the course of about you know a year or two where i was just increasingly burning out from um the things i described in the book sort of the 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 moral um uh zealotry and the the self-loathing that comes from examining every last sort of molecule of your body and every last thought that you've ever had for impurity yeah. um you know and uh and that was just sort of exhausting. And I definitely yeah. just sort of hit bottom there. Yeah. Um, but even at that, I actually wrote on, I think on Substack recently, I'm trying to remember why, but I just remember, I was writing about how I did, even when I hit rock bottom, I kind of scraped everything away. Uh, but I still retained very much like an identification with the the scripture that says I've been crucified with Christ. And I love, and you know, the life, mm -hmm. the life I live in the body, I, 
I live by faith in the son of God. Like that was sort of my mantra. And I did identity work at that point. I mean, informal, just like my own identity work, but I was like, my identity is in Christ and it's not, you know, in, um, my family or my work accomplishments or, um, you know, my wealth or my athletic, anything like that was kind of where I landed. So, you know, in some ways it was just a doubling down on like the core, you know, teachings of Christianity rather than a departure. I think now in my life, you know, because of the last several years, but also just because I think of the process of, you know, being 46, I'm much more in a place of, you know, still identifying with that verse, but, but definitely much more focused on the mystery of faith and, uh, you know, the contingency of knowledge, um, and, and the, the subtleness of, of faith. Um, so. Yeah. I'll just say that that story, I think, um, will resonate with a lot of our listeners just because there is, we hear stories all the time of people who like part of their journey away from the evangelical tradition or the, you know, the, the faith they were brought up in is for the purpose of maintaining their faith. <laughs> it's for the purpose of keeping some kind right. of faith rather than like, so uh, we hardly ever meet and maybe they just don't, you know, reach out to us, but we hardly ever meet people who are um, just sort of throwing away their faith. Um, I meet a lot of people who are noticing that, you know, the core of their faith, um, like there's something they're trying to hold on to and they can't figure out how to hold on to that and this tradition they grew up in or this church that they grew up in. So I did think of one thing actually, it wasn't an event, but it was a pattern where Mm. I got, I got really tired of watching, uh, of, of, of seeing how the notion of power was completely, um, people treat, people act as if power didn't exist. (laughs) People acted Mm -hmm. as if there was no such thing as power. It was all just God speaking and us obeying. And we're all doing what God says to do. We are all vessels. And in reality, people were exercising power and baptizing, you know, baptizing it in religious and spiritual language. And I had the very conscious thought when I left sort of the church bubble and went to political journalism, I just thought I'm going to go somewhere where people are at least honest about what their objectives are. They're seeking power and they're seeking to exercise power. And in the church, we just pretended like it, that wasn't what we were doing. And uh, I found that, I found that infuriating. Well, let's, let's talk about your time uh, in the White House as, as a reporter. You, you talk about um, your life kind of reporting, covering Bush and Obama during your years um, that you began to reconsider the faith that you were raised in. Um, and then you worked with Tucker Carlson. And I, I guess, what did you learn about national politics in your time as a White House reporter? Um, and what do you wish everyone would, would know? Hmm. I mean, so it's a long, I think, first of all, it's just like, you know, if you call a, 
if you have a plumbing problem in your house, you know, you don't call a plumber who uh, just got certified on the job and has no experience. Um, you know, like any profession, you know, politics is something that people understand and are better at the longer they do it, generally speaking. Um, and so the first several years of my time writing about politics was just a, a constant exposure of the, the depths of my ignorance. Um, I remember walking around um, a, 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 an office building on Capitol Hill. I think it was a house office building, you know, walking past committee rooms. This is 2007. And I had just been assigned to cover Congress and I was terrible at that job. Um, I just had no, I had no clue how any of it worked. And I, I literally like didn't know that committees had staff. And so I, I just remember walking through the hall and realizing, oh, there's staff here. I guess that tells me something about how committees work. Um, <laughs> you know, but um, another thing that stands out to me is 2012 covering the presidential campaign for the first time. That's when a lot of um, the machinery of how a, a presidential nomination uh, became evident to me in ways that I just, it kind of blew my mind um, the way that delegates work and, you know, a nomination is accrued through delegates. These, you know, if you're 30, 30 and over and you read, you know, the New York times or read the newspaper now, you probably kind of get this, but I was probably 30 or young thirties and hadn't really, I'd never really cared that much about politics. I just sort of fell into political coverage. And as I talked to experts and understood like the incredible machinations of how these nominations came about, um, just the complexity was really something to behold. Um, then working on my book, you know, my first book about Kennedy and Carter, understanding the history of the nominations was incredibly fascinating you know, uh, it's not always been the way it is now. Therefore, it doesn't have to always be the way it is now. Um, you know, it was interesting just seeing the ways that nominations were um, were chosen by the parties rather than by voters up until this 1970s. So there is just layer upon layer upon layer of complexity, not just in the history, but in terms of how power works for real in a state capital in Washington, D.C., the many levers, the many players. It's just very, very sort of oversimplified. Um, even when it gets to you in a well-written, you know, newspaper article, it's very oversimplified by necessity. And so that becomes sort of, uh, open season for the grifters, for the bad faith, you know, uh, operators who, who want to sell, um, their version of reality. Um, and, uh, so I, I would just say in a word, the answer to your question is, Complexity and expertise matters. I do think that people who work in politics uh, and have, you know, a lot of experience can be like a defensive coordinator in the skybox. You know, the play can kind of be about to snap or in the milliseconds after it snaps on the field, and they can kind of see where the play is going in a way that the average person, even if they're a fan or a super fan, like maybe a super fan, but the average, they don't have the intel that the defensive coordinator has from watching hours of film. So I think a journalist or a political operative can kind of see where the play is going. Um, and unfortunately, I think 
a lot of that sort of expertise is, is, has been definitely dismissed and disregarded over the past several years. Mm. And we see it, we see it now, even, you know, with warnings about where um, Donald Trump would, would go if he was reelected. And now a word from a sponsor. All right, let's get back into our conversation. The final section of your book covers the last 10 years or so, right? Black Lives Matter, Me Too, uh, Trump, Tea Party. Um, let's talk about the ascendancy of Trump. I remember I remember being in a pool in 2015, the summer of 2015, and talking to a, at that time, like a sort of a really hard right-wing end times prepper and joking with him about Donald Trump. You know, I said, well, you, do you like Donald Trump? And he's like, well, I think he speaks his mind, right? This was the thing that was said sort of as a uh, non-toke uh, and sort of a safe sort of affirmation of Trump before he became popular. And I remember thinking <clears throat> there's just absolutely no way that Donald Trump will be elected president. And I think you you named this a bit when we were talking about the long game, your podcast about how somebody that the party didn't even like became the party. Um, I wonder if you could just talk about his ascendancy and how you, how you witnessed that, how you processed that. Were you surprised? You know, did this um, descent into anti-democratic nationalistic dystopian idiocracy? Like, did you, did you, predict that? Did you see it coming? Or were you just as surprised as the rest of us? I, I was right where you were in the summer of 2015. In fact, I was in San Francisco interviewing Jeb Bush the week that Trump <laughs> overtook him in the polls. Um, you know, so most of us were still operating in the conventional political realm, the metaverse that opened up for a minute when uh, Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis d- debated each other um, and gave us sort of a glimpse into what an actual normal, quasi-normal uh, presidential debate would be. Um, yeah, I was, I was very surprised. Um, I had people in my life who were saying he could, he could win or become the nominee. And I just, you know, I I totally dismissed that. So that was the beginning of uh, many years of being humbled, right? Um, You know, over and over, usually related to Trump, not always related to Trump, but usually uh, we've just seen, you know, prediction after prediction, usually about Trump, usually about his demise, you know, uh, fall apart and not come to pass. So, yeah, I was surprised. And then in the, f- let's see, that's 2015. So in the fall of 2015 and early 2016, <clears throat> I was, uh, I was doing some travel. I was going to some rallies, not as much as in 12, but definitely I was on the road. Um, I went to a few Trump rallies. I went to the one, uh, you know, down in South Carolina where he announced the Muslim ban. I was, uh, in the parking lot, actually talking to people there for um, two or three hours. And so, so, so long that I never got in, but um, yeah, it was just this sense of growing discomfort that is probably better captured by the word dread. Um, Just this sense of this can't be happening. Like we're, we're better than this as a country. Um, 
But what I didn't realize until after the election had kind of ended and probably, I don't remember how long it took for me to realize this, but I realized that once the primary ended and it got to the general election, you know, that's, that's when everybody just puts on their Jersey. Um, they put on their, their red Republican Jersey and all <clears throat> doubts and um, questions get completely thrown out the window. The primary was the moment where the Republican party had a chance to, to go with somebody else. And, and I saw it up close in my own family where, you know, Trump was like last on their list of a lot of people in my family for who they would have wanted. And they were pretty disgusted by him. But once it got, once he was the Republican nominee and he was going up against a Democrat and not just any Democrat, but Hillary Clinton, who had been pilloried by Rush Limbaugh and others for decades, you know, that's when just sort of everything, the, and I put it in the terms of their political identity sort of ran over their religious identity. I know they would probably disagree with that, but that's the way it looked to me and still does. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it definitely yeah. feels like that for many of us. There, there was a sense of kind of a sense of like what happened. I thought I knew these people. I thought we were all on the same page. And now this seems so clear to me. And you're saying the exact opposite about what seems so clear to me. There really is a disorientation, John, that happened there um, that, you know, we could have a whole podcast on. Um, two, just, just two more questions, man. Uh, one is, how do, you, how do you see this going um, here in 2024? Like, do you see a way forward where MAGA doesn't seize control? And and sort of further take further steps to undo sort of a working democracy. Well, I think if if Trump is the nominee and loses to Biden or somebody else, um, you know, I think uh, it's hard to know exactly how that would play out. It would probably be uh, bumpy. Um, <laughs> But I think the fact that, you know, Trump would not have control of the military and the federal government would would make it hard for things to get too far out of hand. Um, you know, I hope I hope it wouldn't get out of hand at all. Um or or not too much. Yeah. Um, and as far as what that would mean for MAGA, I think you'd still have um Lots of that in the party, but I think another loss, one which the country sort of survived, would would probably mean that the Republican Party would would try to you know have another go at um at there would be momentum at least for those who want to take the party a different direction. Yeah, like uh, the other sort of scenario is I think still possible though increasingly unlikely, and that is that you know there are polls between now and March um, that show somebody like Nikki Haley, um, probably her more than DeSantis beating Joe Biden by many more points than, than Trump is, Um, you know, maybe polls showing Trump and Biden neck and neck or Biden gaining ground on Trump on, on Trump while, you know, while Haley is, is several points ahead. 
I think that's that's the route for for somebody else to get the primary nomination. Again, I think that's increasingly unlikely, um, but we do need to see how Iowa and New Hampshire play out. Um, yeah. hmm. And then in terms of, uh, do you do you want me to keep going on this, or do you, is that enough? Well, I, <laughs> I mean, we, <laughs> there's like so many different scenarios. I know, but those are I know there are. I, I'm fascinated by this idea of the apparatus, the institution. You know. Um, you had Senator Raphael, Ted Cruz, and others just denouncing Trump, and then as soon as he gets the nomination, kind of kowtowing to him. And I'm I'm fascinated by that turn of if Haley looks like she could beat Biden more surely than Trump, could the institution, the apparatus of the GOP, could they turn the MAGA tide, or would they have to brand Nikki Haley like DeSantis is trying to do? as the better, smarter, younger MAGA? I mean, I don't think the institution of the Republican Party can do much of anything at this point. Um, you know, I think it has to be voter voter driven. Um, but if it looks, you know, we also have to throw into the mix the, the, the criminal trials. So far, they've only, you know, strengthened Trump, but there will be more to come in those. And, you know, if that interacts with the with the primary results in a way that hurts him politically. And then the polls are showing Haley, you know, stronger. What I mean by that is that the only way out, the only exit ramp, I think for the MAGA voter is, you know, one of pragmatism. It's not one of, you know, Trump is bad. Therefore I will vote for Nikki Haley or, you know, Joe Biden, obviously, but like more like, Oh, the best opportunity for Republicans to win um, is for Nikki Haley to be the nominee, not for Donald Trump to be the nominee. I just, I don't think there's any repentance you know, from this, you know, on, on the horizon here. Yeah. Um, and, and institutions, you know, the, the establishment, it's not as if they have no power or, um, no influence, but it's, uh, it's not, not a lot uh, anymore. And that's, that's, that's another thing, Christy, to your question that most people don't understand. I think they kind of walk around listening to these voices telling them that, you know, the left or, the left is out to get them and that like the Republican establishment is trying to, you know, lose to the left probably is the way that they usually are framing it. Um, and certainly the Republican establishment, like there are things it could do, but every step along the way since 2015, it's gotten harder and harder. Um, and, uh, it, you know, the, our politics is very bottom up now so much so that it's, it's probably less democratic. Hmm. Hmm. Well, John, we've just barely touched on the the narration of this book. You're traveling through all these different worlds of evangelical Christianity and how that led you um, to separate yourself from that. But I wonder maybe to close, if you could share with our listeners, like um, how you're trying to make sense of your Christian faith now. Like what, what does it look like to hold on to some semblance you mentioned of like the mystical transcendence of God? And how that maybe is differentiated from the way you were raised. Hitting my cough button. <laughs> um, well, I mean, right now we're in Advent. <clears throat> um, and one of the things that uh, has been most meaningful over the past several years for me and for my kids, we have five kids and they're you know, eight to four, eight to 16 now. Um and the kids really enjoy doing this uh, Advent observation or celebration. Um, we actually, because I, I guess, I, who knows why, 
maybe I'm just like so fed up with the Christmas materialism and commercialism, but, um, but we actually do seven week advent, which, um, starts, you know, in November. Um, and there is a sort of, uh, a, a rhythm and a coherence to it because there are seven verses of O come, O come Emmanuel, um, which relate to, I think the seven antiphons, which are like these ancient, um, you know, hymns that were sung in the medieval church. So every year for the past several years, you know, you know, most Sundays schedule permitting, we get together around a table and, you know, the first week it's pretty short because you light one candle, you sing one verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, you do one reflection. <clears throat> it's, you know, you know, but you're doing Advent. And then, you know, last night we did uh, week five um, and, you know, there's five verses, there's two reflections. It's lasting much longer. There's more candles. Um, and I've really enjoyed, uh, sort of building out, um, not just each liturgy, which is essentially what it is, but building them all together, like thematically. Um, and, and that fits my brain, but the kids also love it. Like last night, I don't think I said a word, Mm. like each of our five kids, one of our kids was the officiant. And then each of the other kids took a turn reading a prayer or reading the reflection I didn't say a word. And, um, you know, we sang two different hymns and, uh, you know, to watch that kind of, even to talk about it makes me a, a little emotional because it's just, uh, it's rich. It's something that they can hand down to their yeah. kids. Um, <clears throat> so stuff like that, uh, is just sort of one, I think example of the ways that <clears throat> habit and rhythm and church calendar, uh, like I think a lot of people out there have become sort of these anchors. And when it comes to the practice of the faith, um, you know, that's and, and sort of which church tradition to find myself in. That's something I'm really still working through. Um, <clears throat> and I'm trying to find both specificity and room for just not knowing. Um, and, uh, you know, oddly enough, like I went to a Catholic you know, uh, wedding the other day. And I just, th- there are parts of the Catholic tradition that I, f- I do find like leave a lot of room for, for mystery, um, in ways that I just, I can't even really articulate yet at this point. Um, but, but currently I go to a black Baptist church. That's a couple blocks from our house. Um, and, uh, but I'm not a very, uh, you know, don't, don't call up pastor, uh, banks and ask him how often I'm, I'm there because he, he he would not have a good report. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, I love I love the rhythm. I love the family gathering and rhythm of that. It's really beautiful yeah. Yeah. and really meaningful. I mean, we find that in our family too. Yeah, so. John. Yeah. The book again yeah. is called Testimony. There it is. Inside the evangelical movement that <laughs> failed a generation. John, you've mentioned your Substack, and I mentioned the podcast. Are there are those the best places to find you out? Um, yeah, online? we all used to just uh, exchange Twitter handles in the past. Um, but yeah, those are probably two <laughs> two of the best ones: uh, the Border Stalkers Substack and uh, the Long Game Podcast. You can also go to John Ward Wrights um, dot org you should know that um that's where information on my books are um and and pretty much everything else is there great well thanks for writing this memoir i know the story resonated with me and will resonate with a lot of our listeners thanks for joining us today john thanks i really enjoyed talking with you all appreciate it 
okay, I feel like I have to take a deep breath. Mm-hmm. I, I, I noticed myself holding my breath in that interview. Did you? And then I thought, hmm. dang it, we got a whole year. Like, there's a whole year coming. And, and just that one yes. little hour is just a little snippet of what is to come. And did you feel that way or is that just me? Um, well, I have felt, I felt that way. I felt but, a, I felt a sort of way when I messed up his title of his book. <laughs> Guys, sometimes I'm bad at my job. Uh, Listener, yeah. sometimes I'm not very good at my job. Um, now, to, no, I feel the same way, Christy. Um, I feel the same way, like a impending doom or dread. You yeah. know, the, the, there's the um, metaphor of like watching a t- slow motion train wreck. Yes. And I do feel a bit like I'm watching a slow motion train wreck. And I can't stop um, the train. And I can't stop the train. And the superhero that uh, maybe could stop the train wreck is um, 114 years old and inspires very few people. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm, I'm talking about Joe Biden. I mean, uh, you know, it's like he's not the hero we need or deserve. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Like, you yeah. know, it, now, now, listener, if you like Joe Biden, I don't I mean, he seems like a pleasant fellow. Um, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to make, um, old people jokes. I mean, I'm, I'm getting up there. I'm just saying like, um, there, there doesn't seem to be a person like a Barack Obama who could arrest the soul of the nation away from MAGA. Yeah. And that brings me a lot of fear. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, um, and sad. And so, <laughs> Yeah. I feel the same way, Chrissy, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he said something. I, I felt a reaction in my body when he, you know, when we asked him what was a, Ben, you asked him what was a catalyst for leaving? Mm-hmm. He's like, I get asked that a lot. I don't know. And he talked. And then he was like, but something did occur to me. He said, in the church, it felt like nobody wanted to acknowledge that people had power. Mm-hmm. That power existed. And it was all about yeah. that power existed. It was all God. God's doing things. Yeah. And honestly, that was my experience for so much of my um, time in the evangelical church. And even, um, Christy, in the times when we overlapped. Yeah. Like, that is one of my deepest regrets as a pastor, is that I did not understand the amount of power I had and tried to pretend like it didn't exist, and that really doesn't do good work for people. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't do good work for people. Yeah, um, yeah, because it does. And exist, when I was in that place, right? It does yeah. exist. Yeah. And when I was in that place, like you know, C.J. Mahaney, we didn't really go into this, but he had like all kinds of awful allegations against him, one after another. Like an ex-elder released like a thousand-page document online, you know, just like crazy stuff against him and Sovereign Case Ministries, et cetera, et cetera. And Chrissy, what I'm talking about in my life, I looked at a CJ Mahaney and said, okay, that's how you misuse power. I'm not going to do that. I right. tried to stay away from that. Right. And I ended up not acknowledging that I had power. Mm-hmm. And so honestly, me trying to stay away from being somebody like CJ, CJ, God bless you. Christ died for you. Okay. <laughs> I love you in Jesus. But trying to stay away from a C.J. Mahaney kind of person, I ended up causing harm in another way. And and really, that is why we started Gravity. Because I'm like, mm-hmm. if I do have power, and it does matter, and so do you, and that matters too, 
how do we account for it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how do we embody a power that is actually good for each other? Yeah. You know? I wonder too, uh, this is just a, a tangential thought here, perhaps, but I wonder too if that is the, the refusal or the inability to recognize and see how power works. I wonder if that's connected to what he said early on about how um, evangelical Christians don't understand how institutions work hmm. either. I kind of wonder about that if they're connected because in a lot of ways, an institution is sort of an agreed upon way of distributing power and getting things done. Like that's essentially, I mean, I'm just making that up. I'm not sure if that's true, but that feels to me like what an institution is, right? It's like an agreed upon procedure for how power works in a certain, you know, relational uh, framework. And so I, I don't know. I wonder if they're connected, like the inability to understand how institutions work and also the inability to see how power works makes everything personal yes. and then the power is hidden. Yes. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Well, I feel like I could have talked to him for a long time, actually. Yeah, he's super interesting. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, I do have a, a, a question for you, though, before sure. we leave. Sure, Um why did the person who invented the merry-go-round never meet the person who invented the Ferris wheel? Uh, uh, I feel like I knew the answer to this at one point, and now I forget wavelengths. it. They were, I don't, I don't know. know. You're so close, Ben. Am I? Because they traveled in different circles. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, I said a joke, right? The, and I actually didn't mess did, it up. You did it, Christy. You did it. Although I, uh, I am... It's probably a great joke because I'm disappointed in the punchline that it wasn't smarter. I was expecting physics oh. or some sort of like vec- like they <laughs> they, they operate on different on. vectors <laughs> or something. Uh, the angles, no, they they okay, different. That's circles. amazing. Listen, I got to give a shout out to my friend Tanner for sending job, that to Tanner. me. So thank you Good. for letting me Thanks, be Tanner. the one that I got uh, to deliver the joke. The gesture, today. the court jester on the Gravity Podcast, and I'll say the today is played the by astute Christy listener. Finley. Also heard, Christy, um, Christy, I knew you were telling me a joke and I was really pulling for you. And the way you said the punchline, it was like the, it was like the runner who throws their hands up before they cross the finish line and start (laughs) celebrating. And I was just hoping that you weren't going to be one of those people that like tripped before the finish line and face planted. (laughs) Which I have before. Uh So I'm really glad uh, that you're, um, oh, you well celebrated done. as well you said done. the punchline and it all came out good in the end. And so I'm. Yes. Yes. Listen, I am not a comedian y'all. Oh, I, I try, but I, I am I not. So you put up, oh, well. you put up with so much sarcasm from us and it, it is not your love language. And this, <laughs> this is proof that Christy is holier than us. You do a great job mm. abiding our <laughs> shenanigans. Anyway. Well Anyway, oh, listener. Well, it's good to be with y'all. Yeah, we'll see you next week. We're here every week. You know where to find us. Yep. Same, same time, mm-hmm. same channel. Yep. See you soon. Peace soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, please tell your friends about it. Word of mouth is the best advertising. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. To join discussions about the podcast and lots more, join us in the Gravity Commons. 
It's free to join, and you can connect with other listeners to the podcast to talk about faith, spirituality, and whatever else comes up. To join, go to gravitycommons.com slash community. The Gravity Podcast is produced by Ben Sturkey and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sturkey edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his mixing, engineering, and production work at aaronsturkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or a comment for us, go to gravitycommons.com slash message and click start recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravitycommons.com. Catch you next time. Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving, plus high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H E R O.co.